Welcome to Rast Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Rastec, the premier publication for Rast professionals. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rast Talk. I'm your host, Marilyn De Guzman, and co-host Brian Vinci is also here today. Hello, Brian. Hello, Marilyn. How are you? I'm good. Our, our summer is definitely ending. <laughs> Brian, first of all, I, I would like to thank you again and your team for your contributions to our first RAS first ever RAS virtual summit last month. The Freshwater Institute really provided some great content for our attendees, and these presentations are still available for access on the RAS Tech website if uh, anyone who's listening is interested. There was also some great discussions in the panel you moderated, Brian, with all those RAS pioneers, Ideal Fish, Aqua Bounty, Hudson Valley Fisheries, and Aquacore really highlighting the success and lessons learned by the early RAS movers. Yeah, we were uh, happy to uh, provide content for the RAS Virtual Summit. I thought the summit came off very well, Marilyn, so congratulations on that. Thank you. There were some really nice panel discussions, including the one that you just mentioned. Um, of course, it was interesting to hear from those folks about how they started their project and what was the driving force for their uh, species selection and technologies, and also to hear a little bit about um, how they raise the capital for their projects, which is something we're going to discuss today. Right, definitely. So this episode is essentially an expansion of one of the key topics that was discussed at the RAS Virtual Summit, and that is on building capital and financing for land-based aquaculture. So without further ado, let's introduce our guests. Uh, first up is Maggie Fried, Head of the Ocean Seafood and Aquaculture Investor Consortium at Creo Syndicate. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you. And Frank Van Roost, Investment Director at Aquaspark. Hello, Frank. Hi, thanks. Hello, Maggie and Frank. Uh, we're glad to have you with us on the podcast today. Uh, we'd like to get started by finding out a little bit more about yourselves and your organizations. So, Maggie, I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind describing Creo um, and also what a family office is and how family offices work when they're investing in aquaculture projects. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. Creo is a nonprofit organization that's a community of intentional and active investors that are developing and scaling solutions to addressing climate change and the sustainability crisis. We work with over 100 members, which are wealth owners, family offices, family trusts, and family-owned enterprises, as well as over 1,000 aligned investors and hundreds of partners to achieve this goal. Um, I think it's also worth noting just a little bit about the Ocean Seafood and Aquaculture Investor Consortium. It is a group of mission-aligned Creole members that are committed to collaborating on and investing in the development of robust, sustainable oceans, aquaculture, and seafood sectors in the Americas and Europe over the coming years. To answer your question as to, to what a family office is, there, there really isn't a standard definition as to what a family office is, but Typically, a family office is established when a family has over $100 million in wealth, and a family office is an institutional-like vehicle that manages their assets and affairs. So every family office is structured and staffed differently, but on the financial side, which is really what's most key to our conversation, a family office will 
typically manage and oversee investments, uh, tax and estate planning, as well as philanthropic activity. Um, and they may also work on any special investment projects of the family, like if they choose to start a venture fund. And what's your role in being the head of the Oceans Seafood and Aquaculture Consortium there? So my job is the head of the consortium, and, and I'll just call it the consortium moving forward since it's, it's a long name to say, is to facilitate the deployment of $250 million of capital into the sustainable oceans, aquaculture, and seafood sectors over the next three years. We haven't established a fund or any kind of special purpose vehicle. Rather, I work with the members of the consortium in order to deploy this capital. And this um, takes on three different uh, approaches. The first is bringing deals to our members. Um, I do an initial diligence uh, and then I bring these opportunities to them. Um, it's creating a community so that our uh, members are willing to share information about what's a fairly opaque industry uh, and co-invest alongside one another and then building an ecosystem of experts uh, and key players in the space um, so that we can advance the growth of these industries together. Great. And then, Frank, um, could you talk about Aquaspark, how you raise your capital and invest in projects, and what areas of aquaculture uh, does your company invest in? Of course, yeah. Let me explain a little bit about who we are and what our fund model is. Aquaspark is a fund uh, focused on sustainable aquaculture. We're based in the Netherlands, by the way, in Utrecht. And, and what we do is we invest in companies along the value chain and also across the globe. Uh, that we think create positive impact uh, in the industry. And we invest, um, as I said, along the value chain, so upstream in new types of, for example, feed ingredients to replace unsustainable ingredients in aqua feeds, for example. Uh, we also invest in technologies, making farming more efficient, or uh, also technologies that can, can enhance animal welfare. Uh, we invest in health solutions. We invest in farming operations, uh, land-based facilities included. And uh, further downstream also in, uh, for example, marketing and distribution of sustainable seafood. And our goal is to build a very large portfolio of six to 80 com 60 to 80 companies, approximately 40 to 50% of those being farming operations. And then really creating as much synergies as possible uh, between all these different companies that we invested in, as well as with a larger ecosystem that we build around that. So for example, through partnerships with NGOs, academia with think tanks with larger corporates and so on the ultimate goal is to um, really show returns that are equal or better than more traditional or unsustainable aquaculture practices so really to build a showcase to the industry and to the larger investor community that we can build a truly sustainable aquaculture industry that yields very high returns and produces affordable healthy and delicious seafood could you talk about how um, your uh choosing projects to invest in or how projects can approach you like what this process is about and can you give some some examples of the projects that you're involved in right now um maybe good to say that the first question we we ask ourselves is uh how, when a company enters our, our pipeline so to say which can happen in various ways we uh, first ask ourselves how is this company potentially creating a positive impact in its uh, respective say sub industry or vertical that's question number one Question number two is really looking at, at the team and see uh, if they're value aligned. You know, if, if we share a vision in terms of where the industry should be heading towards. We 
have quite a large pipeline uh, over the past years. We have more than 1,600 companies in, in, uh, in our pipeline that we uh, track uh, throughout time. And just to give you a bit of flavor on what type of companies we've invested in, let me name three because we've invested in 20 companies by now. It's a little bit too much to uh, mention them all. First of all, I'd like to mention uh, eFishery. eFishery is a company that we invested in in 2015 that produces automatic feeding systems that are then rented out to shrimp and fish farmers uh, that do pond farming in Indonesia. And, and the good thing there is it, it's, it's an extremely affordable feeding system. I'm not 100% sure about pricing, but I believe it's about $30 per month or so per, per system that is uh, cloud connected and can generate feed savings up to say 25% or so compared to manual feeding. And this company is doing really, really well. Uh, they have close to 30,000 units in the field already. It's not only saving money for, for these farmers, but it's also connecting them to a larger community, uh, uh, to a, a marketplace to which they can sell their, their fish and so on. Really interesting company. As a second example would be a farm we have in uh, in Africa, so we really invest across the globe. Afri Africa is also uh, a focus point uh, focus point for for uh, Aquaspark. It's a, a sustainable tilapia farmer based in Mozambique, which was a greenfield investment back then. That we intend to scale up to about say 10,000 tons of production or so, but really also with the aim to um, at least double that production amount in the region by setting up an outgrower program and really spark an industry in the area by supplying high quality feed and fingerlings and equipment and training and really uh, engage with NGOs and uh, local communities and so on. And through this really enhance food security in the area, as well as to provide living wages to say hundreds of people, either directly or indirectly. I would say a third example is, is a company based in Poland, Proteon. Um, they produce uh, bacteriophages, which are sort of natural viral enemies to, uh, to uh, bacteria and really specifically target one type of bacteria and can be a great alternative to antibiotics to fight diseases. And uh, I guess you guys all know that antibiotics are heavily overused in, uh, in a lot of types of animal uh, farming. Uh, not all of it, but, but some of it. And, and replacing those antibiotics uh, to us is, is a big uh, focus point as well. Um, I've actually had quite a few interactions with the folks at Aquaspark over the years. And mm -hmm. uh, another project that I know you uh, helped to lead the capital raise on is an Icelandic land-based um, char and uh, trout farmer called Matorka. And um, I think you got, that was one of your earlier projects and that, that company yeah. you know, seeks sustainability in their production through essentially uh, uh, almost a zero carbon footprint um, at the farm gate um, and it's doing some really interesting things with their expansion. Yeah. Um, I do, I do want to uh, actually ask Maggie and Frank um, if they wouldn't mind commenting on each other's model. Uh, Maggie, meaning, you know, what do you think of Aquaspark and, and would the, is that something that the family offices would consider uh, deploying capital in, or, um, or you know, is it is essentially, you know, what do you think of the model? And then Frank, uh, back looking at Maggie's uh, consortium, how do you see family office investors uh, working in the space? And, and what do you think of that model? So let's go with Maggie first. I, I have nothing but immense respect for Aquaspark. I see them as pioneers and key to moving the sustainable aquaculture space forward. 
in terms of whether family offices are interested in investing in AquaSparks model, we have members who are investing in funds as well as direct investment. So certainly investing in AquaSpark is something um, where there's potential. And then, um, you know, for us, as I'm looking at deals, I've, I've looked at some companies that AquaSpark invests in. And for me, that's always um, a great stamp of approval um, and something that sort of checks the box in terms of, of me feeling like I can can advance them forward and share them with the, the wider community. Interesting. And Frank? Well, I'd like to say two things. First of all, AquaSpark, we have over 170, I mean, uh, I think, uh, investors in our fund. And a very large part of that is, is family offices. So we've been supported as a fund through family office throughout our, our life, I would say. So um, yeah, we really, we really love uh, uh, also what you are doing, doing, Maggie. Secondly, if you just look at uh, the investments we make and a lot of companies, we also see uh, uh, wealthy family offices are investing in, in, uh, in those companies willing to take a risk in, in high impact uh, companies. So yeah, I think that that's a great model actually. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. Um, I think we're gonna shift gears here a little and. Uh, move on to uh, the outlook on uh, RES industry specifically. And I guess I'd like to ask you guys both, what is your current investor outlook on the RES space? And how have the perceptions in the investor community evolved around RES's potential as a profitable venture? And I'll just add to that, um, it seems like you know 10 years ago, the investor outlook was much different than it is today. And today, it seems like uh, there's a lot of capital that's looking for a place to invest in RAS. So Maggie, uh, to you, what's the current investor outlook on RAS from your perspective? Well, I think as, as you mentioned, there's been an evolution uh, from RAS as being viewed as, as largely not economically viable investors and, and also not sustainable. But I think that perception is changing. The technology is improving on water usage. Clean energy is an option for powering facilities. And there is steady progress towards economy of scales, which would seem to indicate that it might be a feasible investment. I, I think it's also important to note that there's been a shift in perception on the economic feasibility of investing in wild capture and traditional aquaculture products. And as those become less viable, I think there's an interest into looking into novel production methods like RAS. Hmm. And I would say in terms of, of investor interests, as I was getting the consortium off the ground, I conducted several surveys to understand our members' interests. Um, and RAS consistently came up as the top area of investor interest. But I think it's, it's important to caveat that with the fact that that's not necessarily translating into the same level of investment at the moment. And Frank? your current investor outlook on recirculation systems really on the production side, but uh, feel free to expand on other parts of the value chain as well. I think generally there's a broadening, broadening investor interest in RAS, in RAS. And for us personally, we, we've been looking into RAS since the get-go. Uh, that means since 2014, 2015, we have over 100 RAS projects uh, uh, that we looked into in the past. We have yet to invest in the space, I would say. Uh, uh, I agree with Maggie, you know, a couple of years ago, it was perceived to be more risky, I think. We do definitely uh, intend to invest in a, a RAS project, I would say rather sooner than later, also because we believe that RAS has 
many sustainability advantages. Uh, but we still think it's generally fairly risky. So we, we really want to make sure it makes sense economically. Uh, we think there's big opportunities in producing closer to market, actually. There's still you know, a lot to be figured out going forward. There's not that many experienced teams out there, although there are for sure. And those are the ones that we're looking for going forward. And I think there is a, uh, an opportunity in investing in sort of higher value species closer to market. I also think that there's an increasing awareness, uh, both amongst consumers and investors, to to buy food that's uh, produced locally uh, and that have a lower negative impact on on the industry. And I think COVID actually accelerates that perception, which which means that um, I think there's more capital flowing into into these types of projects. And it also means there's more and more uh, uh, knowledge around setting up these uh, uh, companies. Can you talk about, and Maggie, and Maggie, you can provide your inputs as well. Uh, talk about some of the risk factors that you're seeing as an investor um, when, when um, investing money in uh, RAS projects. I think specifically, to, I mean, there's many, uh, there's always risks pertaining to sort of new projects, but specifically to RAS, the biggest risk is maybe that there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out in growing out, particularly salmon, I would say, but any species in, in land-based facilities. And, uh, you know, people are gaining more and more knowledge about it, but uh, uh, not a lot of teams out there have a full cycle experience. So that is a risk, I would say. Another thing you hear often, although I've never uh, experienced it personally, I should say, but what you hear often is this off flavor and a somewhat different texture and taste, but I can't really confirm whether that's true or not. I think what happens, uh, what happens sometimes is, 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 uh, relatively large die-offs of your uh, biomass, which probably means you need separated systems, which increases your capex and so on. I would say there's not always 100% clarity on growing out in salt versus freshwater, which has different uh, drawbacks in terms of maintenance or maturation issues. And I think another um, thing we should be aware of is is a high is, is um, effluent water and high concentrations of, of nutrients in there and how to treat those. Building off of that, I would say uh, two things that I would add. I mean, elevating it a bit, I would say biomass management broadly. I mean, as this audience knows, there's been a, a history of mass die-offs and, and investors know this. And so um, they really need to know that a company can scale the amount of biomass that's produced. And, and this goes to what Frank was saying with the team and the expertise they have. But then there's also questions around the technology and the species, as, as Frank mentioned, the handling of biomass. Um, and then related to this, there's also this question of, of cash management. And I think that there's also been a history of, of burning through too much cash and, and still not being able to scale. As, as Frank mentioned, this is very capital intensive part of the industry. And, you know, it, so investors also want to see that companies can, can manage their cash. And, and that's assuming that the economics are there in the first place for an investor to be able to get the return that they need. Yeah, you know, those are both really interesting um, uh, comments on the risk and uh, specifically with regard to the technology. You know, my group at the Freshwater Institute essentially works to de-risk the technology in our last podcast episode that Meryl and I did was with a, a RAS engineer who is, you know, practicing um, in the field and putting in RAS installations and has some of the questions to us as, as R&D folks that Frank mentioned, you know, 
especially when it comes to salmon, you know, we're working, continue to do work, work on de-risking the technology for uh, maturation in, um, in either seawater or freshwater systems. Um, also looking to de-risk for the best genetics and the best feeds mm. and, uh, and on the effluent side, taking uh, the waste that these systems produce and turning it into value. So I would agree with all those those risks, Frank, that they make sense. And, and Maggie brings up something that um, I'm surprised to hear from someone on the investment side, which is uh, biomass management. Um, it's a little bit of industrial engineering, and it's super critical to efficient management of a RAS farm. Um, and, and just, you know, talking about uh, some of these aspects, it makes me think about um, how you guys also see the environmental, social, and corporate government as aspects of these projects. Are, are those ESG um, things something else that you look at in addition to the risks that we just mentioned? Uh, we'll start with Maggie. Well, the goal of the consortium is to develop sustainable aquaculture industries in the Americas and Europe. So the environmental, the sustainability piece is incredibly important in the deals that I review and, and consider sharing with our members. Um, when it comes to the individual investor, the degree to which they weight sustainability against other factors uh, when deciding whether to invest is really dependent on their individual approach and strategy. We don't typically discuss the social and governance pieces as much as the environmental, but that doesn't mean that that one of our members wouldn't consider and value positive social and governance metrics. Yeah, I would I would say likewise. I mean, it, it's at the right at the heart and center of what we do. We try to improve this industry, and really, what we're looking for is uh, uh, practices that uh, that are more sustainable. Um, so the, the environmental factor is is uh, for, also for us one of the most important factors we look at. I think one thing which is important, what we really really look at, is uh, next to you know what happens on paper is what's the type of team we're working with in these uh, projects because it's never perfect from the get go, and we should sort of share a vision on uh, where this needs to head towards. And um, you know, when we're looking at affluent water, for example, and treatment, this is not always easy to do at this point. But we should agree on uh, needing to improve this going forward, even if even if it would cost a little bit more. So yeah. I would say that's also a highly highly important factor to look at. Yeah, and you know, hearing Maggie talk about uh, cash management and hearing you talk about the team makes me think that's that's really the same thing or, or aspects of, of very much the same thing, which is, you know, how, how good are they at, at managing the company and the, and the corporate governance? And But let me put the, the rubber to the road here. Does that make or break a potential investment, Frank? If, if you see um, good things on the sustainability side, but you have some real questions about some of these other things, will that Will that break a potential investment for Aquaspark? Depends on the severity of, uh, but yes, potentially, I'd say. Yeah. And Maggie? I would say that I would not be willing to share, or it is unlikely that I'd be willing to share uh, a company with our members that is one, not focused on the environmental factors, but the governance and team is really critical. And if uh, I feel like there's a, a fairly severe issue there, again, to what Frank said, it, it depends on the severity, then I, I wouldn't share it. Right. That's that's really interesting to hear from the investor's uh, perspective, because I, 
you know, environmental sustainability, corporate governance, that's really getting into more of the mainstream realm now that consumers increasingly, according to, you know, more and more statistics that are increasingly looking for, looking to buy or um, patronize products and services that are coming from companies that are known to be environmentally responsible. I think that's an important thing to, to note for companies that are looking to get, you know, financing investment. Um, let's talk about more current events. There's been um, some new developments in land-based with, with recent um, Atlantic sapphires, um, first commercial harvest uh, in late September. So, um, and, and all the other big RAS uh, projects that are underway right now seem to be uh, getting um, getting ahead and full steam ahead. Um, the Kingfish Company just uh, received their um, uh, an important permit from Maine and so on. So I want to ask you both. Um, a lot of the current the existing RAS operations right now are operating in us, you know, smaller scale, you know, like the Hudson Valleys and uh, the ideal fish. Uh, getting success uh, operating on a smaller scale. Can you comment on the viability in investing in large scale salmon grass projects that are um, underway? Well, at, at this point, I think it's it's challenging to make generalizations about the investment and financial potential of, of large scale projects just because of the difference in, in technology and geography um, and the species, although you did mention uh, salmon specifically, but I think for family offices that are interested in majority ownership or being active investors, it's it's really less feasible to invest in these large projects because of the amount of capital that's needed. Um, in addition, the, the high valuations of these companies also makes them potentially less attractive to a family office. On the other hand, investing in a smaller, earlier stage company may give a family office more potential to have greater ownership, be an active investor, and, and also potentially achieve higher returns. Um, so in terms of what I look at, I look at these smaller scale um, companies to, to share with our membership. Also, they're, for the most part, aware of the bigger salmon companies uh, and the potential there. But, but what I do look at and share with them are these smaller companies. Yeah. And Frank, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that you're looking into, um, uh, you know, getting your feet wet uh, from the yeah. investor's perspective into the RAS uh, realm. So talk about that a little bit more. Comment on this uh, yeah. large-scale projects. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I agree with what Maggie said. It's, it's a little bit hard to uh, already say something about the viability uh, of any of these projects. It's still fairly early stage, but we definitely want to be part of that it depends a little bit on how you define large scale uh, we and our funds are getting at a, a a fund size where we can make larger tickets uh, and we are definitely looking at projects that uh, are aiming to get to say three or four thousand tons as a first step and and i think we will uh, um, you know make investments in those types of scales and then really uh, scaling up uh, uh, over time so that is something we we will probably uh, take part in over the next few uh, few years. The much much larger ones, I mean, are less attractive to us. Having said that, I I, I do think that these sort of, let's say big and bold projects um, are also very much needed to move the industry uh, rapidly. I'm sure there will be setbacks, but I also applaud their ambition. But um, 
you know, yes, we we are interested in in larger scale, depending on how you um, define that. Uh, but the really, really big ones are probably the ones we will not take part in at this point. So does the success or failure of the large land-based salmon grass projects or uh, impact your investment strategies then? Certainly not our, a larger investment strategy, which, which is a lot broader than just RAS. When it comes specifically to RAS, I mean, yes and no, it, it has in the past. We've, we've been very uh, critical and wary to make a RAS investment, but I think we are starting to get at a point where these projects have to start succeeding and we'd love them to succeed. And, uh, you know, some of them will fail uh, inevitably and some of them will succeed and, and, and they have to. Uh, so, no, it's not really impacting our investment strategy, I would say. Just to build on that, I, I do think that similarly, it it is unlikely to directly impact um, the approach that I take when, when looking at companies. But what I, I would say in building off what Frank said is that I think there's trickle down implications for the proof of concept for RAS technologies. Um, that other companies can use. It will help de-risk the space in smaller projects where family offices are looking to invest. Um, and then second, I think specifically pointing to the Atlantic Sapphire Harvest, I think had that failed there, it would have sent a negative signal to the market and may have scared away institutional investors. Um, and I think the involvement of those investors is, is really critical to the success of, of this sector um, and something that we're looking to, to drive as well. So um, I'm glad to see that they they had a successful harvest. Uh, I'm wondering if a lot of the uh, most of the maybe for the and the with the exception of the Kingfish Company, the the projects that are coming on board are on salmon, and I guess because you know they, it has a track record already as opposed to other species. But uh, Frank, you made a, a point. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're looking to invest in high value species as well. So. What are the some of the considerations in terms of the species? You, you're looking at the technology and the expertise of the people, but what about um, uh, species that are being produced? First of all, I think there is um, different types of salmon, actually. You can, so you can also look at king salmon or call. Secondly, uh, we would be interested in, in uh, any high-value species that has a market already, I would say. Um, for which it would be attractive to produce that closer to market. And uh, and I'm saying higher value species uh, in particular because I think that's sort of the first step, stepping stone as an industry, because it's it's easier to um, you know get your economics right, I would say, as a you know high capex project. But it's um, you know, we've been indeed looking into a kingfish salmon, uh, sorry, kingfish in the past, different types of salmon. I think those are the most prominent ones at this point. And Maggie, do you have anything to add to that? Well, with with Atlantic salmon, you're you're tied to commodity prices, which I I think can be problematic. Um, and then when you look at some of these higher value species, I think to to what Frank said, you really need to see a market for it already. Um, I am a little concerned with some of the companies that come to me with with really niche species that just don't have a market yet. Because again, to, to what we were discussing before, being able to scale uh, is really important to success. Yeah, I just want to pick up on that, Frank and Maggie. And, and as someone who lives in the RAS technology space and has for the last 30 years, 
Um, there has always been a criticism from the non-RAS folks about RAS, which is, well, the only way this makes sense is, is if you're doing a high value species. And um, it sounds like, well, that may be correct, or at least a, an established market that is a high value species. Is that correct, Frank? I think um, as, a, as a starting point for an industry to be able to start scaling and bringing costs down, yes. But I think ultimately, and I hope ultimately, you can produce lower value species as well. But I, I wouldn't start with that. Uh, yeah. I would agree with that and, and also just say that I think in order for, for RAS to be successful, we need to be able to increase the amount of seafood that's, that's consumed. Um, and that will include lower value species as well. Yeah, 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 thanks for that. Um, I speak with a lot of project proponents and we have a good number of listeners for the podcast now, which is great. And I know that the folks that listen are, are you know, interested in things like, well, how do I get access to capital? And uh, at what point in my project development do I approach an investor? So uh, to play off of that, I'm curious for both of you, at what stage in the project development should a project proponent start to approach investors? And if you don't mind specifically, you know, relate that to Aquaspark and Creo. So investors are, are sometimes interested in getting to know a company quite early, um, but it, it really is just to get to know them and, and start building the relationship because investing is competitive. Um, however, I've, I've had companies approach me that are still in the concept phase and, and don't yet have their business model solidified and they haven't even started the permit process. And I would say that that's probably too early. Um, you know, as we've discussed throughout this this podcast, RAS investments are risky. So investors typically want to see the company having at least reached a level that diminishes some of that risk. So again, I can't speak for all investors, but I would say that at the point in the process where a company has their permit secured or almost secured if they're adding capacity when they have initial revenue and, and proof that they can scale, then that would be the time to approach investors. And as for our process specifically, um, again, because I work with a, a consortium of investors, I can't speak to everyone's individual process, but our process for engaging is that we have a, a form that on our website that companies can fill out, they they enter into our pipeline. Um, I review the initial materials that they send, decide whether to set up initial diligence call with them, um, conduct that call, and then make a decision on whether to share them with the, the community and what's the best way to share the company. And then also, I think it's, it's just important to note, because I do get asked this quite often, that um, if our investors are, are interested that I, I make an introduction to the company and then step back and let them carry forward, we, we're not taking any sort of fee or, or have a financial incentive. We're just truly making that connection between an investor and a company. So is it creo.org then or for that form? Creosyndicate.org. Creosyndicate.org. And uh, Maggie, I don't mean to overload you with, uh, with emails here, but uh, for the listeners out there who have project pr proposals that they want to share with uh, with Maggie, that's how you do it. And Frank, how about uh, Aquaspark? Um, what stage in the project uh, should proponents start to approach investors and specifically for for the Aquaspark model? Yeah, maybe, maybe good to say that we typically invest in a company that has proof of concept, is ready to scale, sort of uh, 
Series A, Series B venture capital style uh, investments. That's our sweet spot, uh, but not the only thing we do. Um, and particularly for RAS, given that these projects are so um, you know uh, capital intensive, we tend to look at earlier stage uh, investment proposals and uh, or investment requests, I should say, uh, meaning sort of similar to what uh, Maggie said, I think. So if, if it's if it's a greenfield, that's something we would seriously look at. But you need to have your, uh, uh, you know, all the licenses in place and so on. And ideally, we have a team involved that has experience in, in setting up these types of projects. Even if we would think it is too early now, we are definitely interested in, in getting in touch with you and understanding the potential and staying in touch over time. Because we might not, you know, it might not be the right time for us now, but it can be in, in two years from now and better to be in touch already than you know, being too late doing that. Those are really uh, important points uh, to highlight again uh, for listeners who have a project and looking to uh, raise capital on on their business concept or, or project. Um, so on the flip side of that, I want to ask you as well, um, what are some of the pitfalls um, that project proponents should avoid, you know, in, in approaching uh, potential investors? This is, this is less about how you approach investors and and more about the information that you share uh, when you have that initial conversation. But I think when when a company comes to me, I, I really want to know that they understand the risks and the challenges to be successful in this space. Um, and I want to hear about typically in detail what they're doing to ensure that they don't become a, a failed project. And I think that oftentimes, not oftentimes, that that on occasion that's really glossed over um, or when I ask it's it's uh, not gone into in, in significant depth um, and and I think that that can be problematic um, and something that again an investor really wants to understand whether it's the team the technology of, of what they're doing uh, in order to be successful what what's what's really helpful normally in the process is if we have really high quality material. And I would say most notably a, a proper business plan uh, or investor memorandum and a full-fledged model that really shows that you understand what type of business you're in. I mean, maybe less particularly to rest because it's a little bit more obvious there, but just generally really, really thinking about sort of your uh, value proposition, a good product market fit, uh, and show that you have an understanding how you bring it to the market. And more specifically to RAS, I would say, really show that you have, uh, you know, the right team in place to get this project off the ground. Uh, Maggie and Frank, you've both mentioned um, you know, project teams and how important that is um, to the investment and, um, you know, de-risking the investment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and uh, identify the roles that a, uh, a team should have filled um, as they're uh, starting to develop their project. Uh, Maggie? So I think first of all, going back to what I mentioned earlier with cash management, the, the financial side of the house is really important um, and seeing someone with, with business acumen and financial expertise to be able to help manage the burn rate as, as the company is growing. Then I would say that to our conversation earlier about biomass management, having someone with fish health experience is really important. But not just that, um, one investor I was speaking to recently was talking about the importance of really making sure that the team has gone through the learning curve, um, that they've experienced failures in the past, 
learn from those failures um, and are able to apply that to this company and project. And then I would say finally that I've seen quite a few companies that are developing um, their systems in-house rather than going with a technology provider. And then if that's the case, then really wanting to make sure that they have the expertise um, to be able to, to manage that technology uh, and be able to scale it as the company grows. Yeah, all, all so important, um, uh, all of those things. And, and when I look at projects, uh, of course, I focus on the, the latter that you mentioned, um, and I'm, I'm not as good as evaluating some of those other roles, but I think having that technology piece in place, whether it's in-house or from a provider, uh, must be a critical thing to to to, be, to look at when investing. Frank? Yes, well, not, not uh, too much to add to what you already said, but the, the first thing we would look at if it's, a, if it's about a, uh, a fish farm generally is I think the most important uh, role is, is the actual farm manager. Uh, he, he's the person that's, that he or she is the person that's uh, and should be in control of the biomass. And at the end of the day, you're a... Uh, uh, biomass producing entity. So I, I think that's the most important role and then really build a team around that. Uh, a good CEO that can lead the company has entrepreneurial spirit uh, and indeed a, a finance person that understands uh, cash flows in a, in a CapEx heavy uh, environment is, uh, is crucial, I'd say. Well, uh, wonderful. And, and I want to um, thank you guys for sharing uh, your expertise, taking the time out of your day to do that with our listeners. I think this has just been a tremendously information-packed um, podcast about uh, investments and, and things that people need to think about, risks, teams, things that need to be done like permits in advance of investing. So again, thank you so much. Take thank off. you. That concludes our episode. For the latest RAS-related news, visit rastechmagazine.com. Join us again next time for another engaging conversation here at RAS Talk.